What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, called by Jesus? It probably depends maybe on how you were raised. I was raised in a way where being called with the phrase called of Jesus, called by Jesus meant being called into full time ministry. I remember missionaries coming to our church and talking about being called by Jesus to go to the Ivory Coast or to France or something like that. I remember hearing preachers talking about being called to ministry in high school and college. I mean, they were called to be a pastor. They were called to preach. Now, for the most part, what stands out to me the most about these stories is how bad most preachers made it sound to be called by Jesus. Now, again, if you were raised in a similar environment to I was, you, you probably heard a preacher describe his call to the ministry something like this. One day during a service, I really felt like the Lord was calling me to preach. This was the last thing in the world I wanted to hear. So for the next five years, I ran from God, but he wouldn't leave me alone. His call on my life was so strong and I was miserable until I finally surrendered to the ministry. I don't know how many times I heard some version of that story growing up, but I do know that it made me think being called by Jesus was had to be the worst thing ever. Uh, to me, I mean, they, they all ran from it. It made them miserable. And then they had to surrender to it. That sounded like what happened when I made my brother mad. Right. I, it was making me miserable. I had to run from it. And then in the end, I ended up having to give uncle and have to surrender to it. I, I know the sheer number of those stories made me question whether or not I was called when I felt the Lord was calling me to preach. Because when I felt the Lord was calling me to preach, I didn't feel that dread. I didn't feel that sheer terror and that was going to make me miserable. I was like, man, that's, well, I never thought of that, but that's exciting. And then I thought, well, that can't be right because I've never heard a story like that before. So I spent a lot of time wrestling with whether or not I was called simply because of the way I understood being called by Jesus was done. These stories, they, they shaped how I've tried to teach and preach about being called by Jesus. So anytime I've taught about being called by Jesus, I've tried to to put forth two truths. One is every disciple is called by Jesus. Now, some are called into full time vocational ministry and some are not. But every disciple of Jesus has been equally called by Jesus. Second truth is being called by Jesus is a great thing. It's not something we fear. It's not something we should run from. It's not even really something we have to surrender to. Honestly, doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do when he wants you to do it and the way he wants it done is the greatest thing ever, as far as I'm concerned. Today, we're going to look at a passage that gives us insight into the call of Jesus on all of our lives. Open your Bible to Mark 7. No, I have Matthew 3. We are not in Matthew 3. Mark 3, verses 7 through 19 is what we're going to be reading from today. This has been a long week. Hopefully it's not a long sermon. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 3 and verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a large multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea. And beyond the Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard about everything he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples to see that a boat would be ready for him because of the masses so they would not crowd him. 
for he had healed many, with the result that all who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he strongly warned them not to reveal who he was. And he went up on a mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him. And he could send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Sons of Thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. The title of the message this morning is Called by Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the privilege we have today to gather uh, in, in the safety of our church. To be together, to sing songs of praise to you, to study your word. Lord, what a, what blessings are ours. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of your word. Lord, what a great treasure we have in your word that guides us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives within us and who makes the word living and active to us and, and who opens our eyes to understand wondrous things from your word. Send Holy Spirit today to open our eyes. Let him reveal to us the deep things of God from your word. Let him bring us, Father, into all truth that we would understand this passage. We would understand what it means to be called by Jesus. And Father, we would we would live in that. That, Lord, we would live in the call that you have placed upon our lives and we would do whatever it is you have for us to do. We love you, Lord, and we want your will to be done in our lives. Fill me this morning with Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Don't let me be a hindrance in any way, Father. Use this time to strengthen us. Use this time to encourage us. Use this time to challenge us. And use this time to draw us closer to you. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we are going to focus primarily on verses 13 through 15. But the verses leading up to it are important. Uh, We ended last week where the religious leaders determined that they were going to try to find ways to put Jesus to death. As they do, Jesus withdraws with his disciples. And the, the image seems to be that he's withdrawing with his disciples in an effort to be alone with them to try to impart some things to them to prepare them. Remember, these are his disciples. He is discipling them. He has a plan for them. There's something he is wanting to do in them and through them and for them. But Jesus' ministry of healing and deliverance and teaching uh, has earned him quite a reputation. So a multitude from all around follow him. The people come from all over the area to go to to hear him teach, to see his miracles, to, to see him essentially touch them if they have a need and make their lives different because of who he is and what he can do. There are so many that Jesus tells the disciples to have a boat ready because of the masses so they would not crowd him. Some translations say crush him. He's concerned that he's basically going to get trampled in the rush of people to get up there to, to touch him and be healed. He has healed and he has done all of these things. He has proved he is the promised Messiah. He has shown that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world through his ministry. And so all of these people are there. And so he is healing them. He is casting out spirits. He is teaching them. He is doing all 
of these works. And and what he's doing in these verses, the the crowd of people who are around him, the number of people he's trying to minister to personally, is a big part of the reason that what we see in verses 13 through 19 happens. Jesus, in his humanity, was not omnipresent. He was not everywhere all at the same time. Jesus in his humanity was limited to one place at one time. And there were just genuinely too many people for Jesus to minister to individually. And calling these disciples and choosing them to do this, he was selecting them so he could essentially multiply himself. And they could go and they could minister and they could cast out demons and they could preach the gospel of the kingdom and they could heal the sick. In fact, in later chapter, he is actually going to send them out to do this very thing. So the reason Jesus called these disciples was to multiply his work on the earth. The reason Jesus calls us as disciples is for the same reason, to multiply his work on the earth. You see, there's no way any one person can do all the things Jesus wants done in a given community. Gosh, all the things that need to be done just for our church so that we can do all the things God wants us to do. There is no one person who can do all the things that need to be done. What's needed are disciples. People who have been called by Jesus, have embraced the mission of Jesus, and are doing what he has called them to do within the context of the local church to enable it to make a difference in its community. So this is the reason for the call. So that we can go and do the works of Jesus in the world around us. Now, notice the call in verse 13. He he calls them and he summons the ones he wanted. In verse 16 through 19, he calls them... By name. Now, Luke's account tells us Jesus spent the night in prayer on who it was to call. So what we see is Jesus and his disciples go up. Multitudes follow. It does appear that at some point the crowds kind of dissipate and he has time alone. He goes up and prays and he comes down to the multitude that's still there. He has more than 12 people who are his disciples who are following him. And as he comes down where all of those people are, he begins to call them by name. Matthew, James, Thomas, you guys, you come here to me. He doesn't just scream out to the multitudes, hey, you come up here. And whoever comes, the first 12 that came, those were the ones he was calling for. He calls them by name. And after calling them by name, he lets them know the specifics of his calling on their life. Now, there is it's true That in some ways, this call was unique to the apostles. But the principle of how this calling happens is still true in our lives today as well. right? And so the the overarching truth is Jesus calls us by name. This is a simple truth. But often the simple truths are the most powerful truths. It is to me, hugely important for all of us to know when we were called to Jesus, we were called by name. He didn't say, hey, you and those of us that responded, those are the ones he was talking to. When I was in the army, I went to a school called the Air Assault School. And on zero day at Air Assault School, you report to the school at like four in the morning. 
and you crowd into this tiny little room while they call your name, while you wait for them to call your name to get a roster number. And when they call your name, you're supposed to shout out, Here, Air Assault Sergeant! And then you book it to the front of the room, you grab your tag, and you run out the door to the formation area where your gear is. Now, as soon as you run out the door, when your left foot hits the ground, you're supposed to say, Air Assault. Everywhere you go, you run. And everywhere you run, when your left foot hits the ground, you shout, Air Assault. Well, you run out into the dark, and as you run out into the dark, and there's a bunch of you running out, there are other air assault instructors right around the door. And they don't know your name. And they can't see you clearly because it's still about 4.30 in the morning. And you run out into the dark, and there's a group of us, and they holler, Hey you! Come here! Right? And if you're dumb enough to turn around, you're the one they meant. When I went, I ran out, and they said, Hey you! And I knew that wasn't my name. So I kept running. And they said, hey, you again. And so I kept running. And then they started chasing me, shouting, hey, you. And so I ran faster, but I wasn't fast enough. And they caught me. And they said, are you ignoring us? And I was like, well, I didn't know you were talking to me, which may or may not have been true. But they shouted, hey, you. And whoever turned around, that was the person they were talking to. That's not what Jesus does. On the, on the day you were saved, Jesus called you as an individual. He didn't, through the preacher, or through however you were saved, He didn't shout, hey you, pricked your ear, you went to the altar, and so you were the one He was talking to. That wasn't what happened. On the night that I was saved at a Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church, Jesus came to me, and He said, you, Stacy, I'm talking to you, I'm calling you. When Jesus called me to preach, he didn't just say, hey, you in that church service. And the one that went forward was the person he was calling to preach. He came to me and he said, Stacy, I'm talking to you. When Jesus saved you, he called you by name. That's important. That is important to know. Is that Jesus, think about that. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who created all things and upholds the world by the breath of his mouth, the word of his mouth, when it came time for you to be saved, He made an intentional decision to reach out to you as an individual, to prick your heart, to call you to Himself. That's important. So you and I, we have been called as individuals by Jesus to Jesus. And this is true for all of us. So what we're going to look at in this passage, while it may be lived out differently from person to person in some ways... The overarching principles are true for all of us. There is some things in this that are for the apostles and not for us. But the principles in this are the same. There are three aspects to all of our calling we find in this passage. Number one, Jesus calls us to a relationship with him. Notice what it says, the first of verse 13. He went up on the mountain. And he summoned those who he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed twelve so they would be with him. So think about that for a second. The ones that came, these twelve, those were the ones he wanted. And they were their primary job. The first thing they were called to was to be with him. These 12 men would spend the next three and a half years with Jesus. There would be very little time they were not with him physically. 
the end of their life, at the end of Jesus's time on earth, they would not have a casual knowledge of who Jesus was or what Jesus would like. They would genuinely know him and they would have a very real personal relationship with him. The principle of their calling is true for our calling as well. So let's take a second and think on these truths. Jesus called us to himself. So think about that. The first calling that was placed upon any of our lives as disciples of Jesus was come to Jesus. It wasn't come to a religion. It wasn't come to a bunch of do's and don'ts. It was come to a person. The person who loved you and gave his life for you. The person who paid the penalty for your sins. The person who rose again on the third day. The person who is king over kings and lord over lords. He called you to come to himself. Our primary calling is a calling to Jesus. And it is a calling by Jesus. How great is that? How great is it to know Jesus called us to himself, individually to himself? Secondly, Jesus called those who he himself wanted. Jesus called us to himself because he himself wanted us. Again, think about that. Why did the Holy Spirit prick your heart? Show you your need for a savior. Why did the Holy Spirit not let up when you resisted time after time after time? Why did he stay in that until you surrendered to that? You followed it through. You cried out to Jesus. It was because Jesus wanted you. Jesus wanted us. Not just Jesus wanted people. Not just Jesus wants the world. Not just Jesus wants Gaiman. Jesus wanted you. You as a person. You as an individual. I, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we we think that Jesus and the way he chooses, it's it's kind of like the way teams are chosen in grade school. Right? You pick the best players first and all the good players are gone and then it's down to, to two people and it's like, eh, I guess I'll take Stacy and you can have the other person. Right? And, and we can think... Well, all the famous people, they're, I mean, the rich and the famous people, they're not answering that call. So it's down to the, the dregs like me. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He just had to settle for us. But that's not what he did. Jesus called you because he wanted you. Jesus called me because he wanted me. Each one of us. We were called by Jesus to Jesus because Jesus wanted us. To come to him. And then Jesus called us to be with him. That they would be with him. Now, these apostles were going to spend a significant amount of time with Jesus. We too are called to spend a significant amount of time with Jesus. We are called to to live in light of his presence. We're called to, to know him through his word. To know him through faith and experience. We're called... To, to know Him well. All throughout God's Word, when it talks about our knowing of Jesus, it uses a word that means to personally know someone in the, in the New Testament. Right? There were two Greek words that could mean to know. One was just like a general knowledge, like you knew about something. And then one was an intimate knowledge that meant you, you really knew them. 
And the word that's used in Peter, for example, and the word that's used most often is the intimate word. That we would know Him. This is eternal life, that we might know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom He sent. We are called to genuinely and legitimately know Him. To know His voice, He talks about in John chapter 10, to follow Him, to be with Him, to experience Him, to enjoy Him. We are called first to a relationship with Jesus. When Jesus calls us, He does call us to salvation. But He calls us to more than that. He calls us to a real and dynamic relationship with Him. He calls us to the kind of relationship where we can talk to Him and He talks to us. We're called to a kind of relationship where He will guide us along the best paths of our life. Now, of course, we're in a little bit of a different boat than the disciples. We don't physically see Jesus and we don't physically walk with Him. But we have the Holy Spirit within us. And Jesus says... John chapter 14 or 16, this is to our benefit. According to Jesus, now this is Jesus, this isn't me, I would not say it this way. According to Jesus, us having the Spirit within us is better than Jesus physically dwelling beside us. Because he tells the apostles, he says, Don't be sad that I'm leaving. It's to your benefit that I go away. If I did not go, the Holy Spirit would not come. So, how is it better? That's, that's high knowledge for me. I haven't quite wrapped my mind around that, but that's the truth of what he says. Jesus says that we would know the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come to be in us. And so our salvation is, is real. And our relationship with Jesus is just as real to us as it was to them, even though we have not physically seen him. The call of Jesus is more than a call to get out of hell free. Salvation is more than a get out of hell free card. God initially created humanity to have a love-based relationship with them. Sin ruptured that relationship. But Jesus and what He did on the cross, He restored it. And He made it so we could have the kind of love-based relationship with God we were intended to have. In his book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby says, Do you sense as you read the scriptures that God became real and personal to people? Do you sense their relationship with God was practical? Was he real and personal to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaiah? Yes, yes, yes. Has God changed? No. This was true in the Old Testament. It was true during the time of Jesus' life and ministry. It was true after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Your life can also reflect the kind of real, personal, practical relationship as you respond to God's working in your life. Blackaby concludes by saying, If, for some reason, you cannot think of a time when your relationship with God has been real, personal, and practical, you need to spend some time evaluating your relationship to Him. When Jesus calls us, He is calling us to a wonderful relationship with Him. He calls us primarily to Him. He calls us to Him because He wants us to come to Him. And He calls us to come to Him because He wants us to be 
with him. Jesus calls us by name because he wants us to have a relationship with him. Jesus calls us to a relationship with him. But Jesus also calls us to a mission from him. Now, again, the, the, the order is significant. He summoned those who he himself wanted. They came to him. He appointed twelve so they would be with him. And only after that, he would send them out to preach. Right? They were not first called to a mission. They were first called to a person. And after being with the person, and loving the person, and enjoying the person, and experiencing the person, would they then be sent out on a mission? Again, this is very true for us as well. We are not called primarily to serve Jesus. We are called to know Jesus. To have a relationship with Him. And out of that relationship with Him, we serve Jesus. Our service does not define who we are or what we are. Our relationship, we're His disciples. That defines us. And out of our discipleship, out of our relationship, we serve Him. Now for them, they had a very specific mission. They were to go and preach. They were to act as heralds and sound forth the message of the king. They were to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to urge people to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus and be saved. They were to declare a savior had come, declare the message of hope and peace and salvation and blessing. Now, that was their specific mission. We are not all called to preach, but we are all called to a mission from Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. Right? So, verse 8 and 9. We are saved. That's that's a saved passage. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Not by our good works. Not by the good works we've done in the past. Not by the good works we've done in the future. The reason is so that we don't boast. When we get to heaven, we're not going to boast before the Lord about all we have done. We're simply going to rejoice and rest in what He has done for us in Christ. But notice, we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus alone. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That specifically created in Christ speaks of salvation. That's not our initial creation that He formed us as people and breathed the breath of life into us. This is our salvation. We are His workmanship, created in Christ, saved to do the good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So you and I, we were saved. And as we were saved, there is something that God has for us to do Something He has always planned for us to do. Prepared beforehand. The idea of beforehand is in eternity past. In eternity past, God knew He was going to create you. In eternity past, God knew He was going to save you. In eternity past, God knew how you were going to be made. He knew your your personality, your quirks, your good points, your bad points, your strengths, your weaknesses. He knew what you would like and what you didn't like. He knew what you'd be good at and what you would be bad at. He knew the sins you would overcome easily, the ones you would struggle with for a long time. 
He knew about your doubts and your fears and every aspect of your life. There was nothing that's a part of your life now or will be a part of your life in the future God did not know about. And in light of all of the knowledge He had about who you are and what you're like, He also has something, a mission for you to do. A mission for me to do. Now, our missions will vary. What we're to do, what the good works we're to do are going to vary. Now, in some cases, they're, they're the same. I mean, we're all supposed to kind of make disciples. We're all supposed to live in ways that bring glory to God. All husbands are to love their wives as Jesus has loved the church. All parents are to raise their children to nurture and the admonition of the Lord. All of those things are, are consistent. But there is something that God specifically created you and saved you. And has filled you with his spirit to do. So to me, again, I think that's an amazing thought. Growing up, I had no concept of, of God having a plan for our lives. I assumed God had a plan for missionaries. That made sense. I assumed God had a plan for pastors. That made sense. Probably deacons and Sunday school teachers as well. But quote unquote regular Christians could just sort of. Their lives were open and free and it didn't matter. But that's not the truth. And to me, I guess it depends. We could see it in a negative light. I mean, it's possible for us to see God having something specific in our lives as a negative light. That it's going to steal our joy. That it's just one more thing added on to our lives. That it's a bad thing. That's going to be something we don't like and don't want to do, can't stand. And I have known people that kind of felt that way. Doesn't that speak ill of our relationship with God? I mean, isn't that quite revealing of how we view God? Think about as parents. How many times as parents, when you were trying to guide your children along the best path for their life, right? Do this, don't do that. They, they really thought you had it in for them, right? You're trying to ruin their life. You're trying to steal their fun. You're trying to make them miserable. But you knew that wasn't the case. You were trying to protect them from harm. You were trying to, to guide them according to what you thought they could do well and what would be helpful to them in their life. But they couldn't sense it. Now, for many of us, when our kids did that, it was in the teenage rebellious years when they didn't like us. It's Their attitude toward us as we did that spoke about their view of us at that particular moment. When I rebelled against my parents in that way, it spoke of my low view of them and their love for me. So if our view of God's will, God's, God's good works for us, makes us go, ooh, that's just one more thing, that does really say something to our view of God. But if we really understand it, it it's an amazing thing. Again, these were not just, he created a bunch of stuff and he just sort of threw it out and something landed on us. I mean, he intentionally made us. And he intentionally created our personalities and our strengths and our weaknesses. And he intentionally planned for something for us to do. I grew up in Pickett Center, Oklahoma. Pickett Center is in the middle of Pickett and Center. It's where they meet. That's literally the name of the town. The only thing in Pickett Center, Oklahoma, was if you went down the right dirt road, there was a guy who was a catfisher. 
And he went catfishing and he cut the heads off the catfish and he put them on the fence post along, along his property. And so if you drove down that road, there were catfish heads, various sizes and various stages of decay along the pole. If you went to Pickett Center to look at something, that was literally the only thing anyone went there to look at. And God, who spoke the worlds into existence, he looked down and he saw me. And he called me and he had a plan for me, something for me as an individual, too. I find that to be an amazing thing. And you, you should see it as an amazing thing as well. That the great God of the universe has something specific for you to do. Now, Jesus said he come to give life and life more abundantly. So whatever he has for us, it is a part of what brings about the abundant life We're meant to mention we will never truly flourish and we will never truly experience the abundant life Jesus wants to give while we're not doing his will. So what he has for us is literally the best thing ever. It just is. So Jesus has a mission for all of us. We're called to mission. The question is, what is your mission? I read a a blog once by a pastor and he had asked, he pastors a, a large church, and he had sent a questionnaire out to their church family to ask this question. Besides ministering to my family, what is the number one most important thing Jesus wants me to do in my life? Now he found the question discouraging because most people in his church had no idea. So you called to a mission. That's not a question. The question is, can you answer that succinctly? Can you with clarity answer what is the number one thing Jesus wants you to do aside from ministering to your family? We're called for a mission. And since we're called to a mission, we need to know what our mission is. It's one thing to say Jesus has a plan for our lives. Something entirely different to be able to clearly state what this mission is. You and I, we are called for a mission. And if we don't know what our mission is, we should seek Jesus until he answers. He wants us to know. He told them they didn't have to guess. Right. They didn't have to fill out a questionnaire. They didn't draw something out of a hat. They didn't have to guess. He told them. You and I, if we don't know and we go to Jesus and say, what, besides ministering to my family, Jesus, what is the number one thing you want me to do? I'm convinced he'll show us. He wants us to know what we're created in him to do. He wants us to accomplish that. We we need to know so we can give our lives to doing it. We're all familiar with the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. Saying he had finished the race, he had fought the fight, and he had remained faithful. Paul knew his one thing, and he did his one thing. And from a jail from which he would be led to death, he had completed his one thing. If we want to be able to live a life and on our deathbed not be able to look back with vain regrets... We must know our one thing. And we must do our one thing. 
So that at the end of our lives, we can, we can say, I have finished the race. I have fought the fight. And I have remained faithful. Jesus calls us by name. And he calls us to mission. And then he calls us to be fruitful through him. That he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And they would go and they would heal the sick and they would cast out demons and they would see converts and they would see fruit from the mission Jesus had assigned to them. Some of the gospel accounts tell us they come back rejoicing over the amount of fruit produced in their journeys. When you read through God's word, particularly the gospel accounts, you find Jesus expected his disciples to be fruitful. Even this was such an important concept that during the last hours of his life, he took a time to explain it to his disciples. I'm the vine, you're the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My father is glorified by this, by your bearing fruit. You bear much fruit and so prove to my disciples. A lot there that we don't have time to, to go into, but just a, a few things. One, our being able to bear fruit is conditioned upon our being connected to Jesus. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, we can do nothing. So our, our being able to just because we can go out and maybe talk somebody into something. Or we can do it in our natural strength. That's not what he's talking about. It's talking about things that can only be accomplished because of the work of Christ in us and through us. Second, fruit bearing should be a natural part of our lives. Right? The wording in that chapter and much of it is just as we're connected to him, the fruit abides. The fruit comes. Our connection to Jesus allows the Holy Spirit to flow into us and fruit to flow out of us. Another thing we see is we should bear much fruit. Not just a little fruit, but much fruit. We see that our Father is glorified by our fruit. And then finally, bearing fruit proves we are disciples of Jesus. Now, the passage in John is challenging because it does give us a concrete way to evaluate our lives. Again, it's easy enough to say I'm a disciple of Jesus. It's easy enough to say I'm connected to Jesus. But where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? What in your life and mine testifies of the fact we remain in him and he has remained in us? What evidence in our lives demonstrates we are disciples of Jesus who have a thriving relationship with Jesus? Now, Jesus leaves us no wiggle room for excuses. If we are disciples of Jesus, we will bear fruit through Jesus. And if we aren't bearing fruit through Jesus, it's because we're not abiding in Jesus. And in fact, may not actually be disciples of Jesus. This is a straightforward examination of our lives. And I have another passage to look at, but I'm not going to. Take time this week, read Mark 11, particularly verses 12 through 14. It's where Jesus curses the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. As you look at that, kind of ask yourself some questions. Why did he look for fruit 
on a tree when it was too early for the phoenix that season? What was the bigger picture? What was the point of what he did there? It was a testimony. I'll just tell you this and we'll move on. Figs, fig trees had leaves or bore fruit before they bore fruit, before fruit, before they had leaves. And if you saw a fig tree with leaves, it should mean there was fruit. Right. So that's why he went there to look for fruit, even though it was too early in the season. The point of the story was kind of the religious leaders. They had leaves, if you will, of religion. They wore the right clothes. They went to temple on the right days. They, they tithed even the smallest amount. There was no real fruit in their lives that demonstrated their connection to God, their love for the Lord. And it was a testimony to them. It was a kind of a prophetic warning and testimony to them that leaves of religion are not enough. There must be fruit from our connection to God. So the lesson, the question and lesson for us is, we have leaves we're here. We're at church on a Sunday. Most of us were here last Sunday. We're here today. Most of us will probably be here next Sunday. We have the leaves of religion. The question is, is there fruit? Or is it just the leaves? We have to answer this question. We have to be able to, to be firm and to know where the fruit is in our lives. As we come to the close... We need to, to ask, have I answered the call of Jesus? Have I answered the call to come to Him for my relationship with Him? Right? That's, that's where it has to begin. We don't answer the call to fruit. We don't answer the call to service. We answer the call to a relationship with Jesus. How is your relationship with Jesus? I mean, would you say, I know him? Not just I know about him, but I know him. And it is a relationship where he guides me and leads me and strengthens me and helps me and changes me and challenges me. If not, it's meant to be all of those things. So if your relationship with Jesus isn't as it should be, Jesus right now is calling you. Come to me. I want you to be with me. I want you to know me. And I'm choosing you personally. Second question is, have you answered his call to mission? What is the number one thing Jesus wants you to do besides minister to your family? You should be able to give some sort of an answer to that. And if not, then maybe what you do is go to Jesus in this time and say, Jesus, show me what my mission is. What is it you have created me to do? You, you lay down the path and I'll take off after you. I will do what you want me to do. He wants us to know. And then third, where's the fruit? And if there's not fruit, it's a time to go to Jesus and say, what's, what's wrong? I mean, it's not, here's the thing where it's hard. It's not Jesus, right? He's not at fault because we're not bearing fruit. If we're not bearing fruit, the fault for that lies in us. So what's wrong in my life? It's keeping me from bearing the fruit that should be born because of my connection to you, Jesus. So I ask you to stand. And if you want to come to the altar to pray, you can. If you want to pray where you are, you can.
this is the time to begin to, to seek Jesus, to answer his call to a relationship, to answer his call to mission, to answer his call and bear fruit. So whatever you need to do in this time, you spend this time and you do it. I'll pray and the altars will be open if you want to come forward. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you that you've called us to yourself. It's an amazing thing to think that you have chosen us individually, you have called us individually, and you want us to be with you. This call to you is of so much importance that when the disciples came back, rejoicing even that the demons were subject to them in your name, what you told them to do was rejoice most that their names were written in heaven. If we don't get our relationship with you right, nothing else matters. Search us today. Help us to ask, what kind of relationship do I have with Jesus? And if it's not all that it ought to be, let us hear you calling to come and to lay our burdens down, to find rest for our souls, to know you, to experience you, and to love you. Jesus, I thank you that you've called us to mission. The great God of the universe has something for us to do. It's of so much importance that anything else we do is essentially wasting our lives. Let us in this time know with clarity what is the one thing, the number one thing you want us to do. What is your mission and your plan for our lives? And let us know it and then pursue it with all of our hearts. And where there is no fruit, bother us. Where there is no fruit, let us seek you and find out what the problem is. Search us in this time and try us. See if there's anything in our lives that's not pleasing to you. And if there is, remove it. And let there be a free flow of your Holy Spirit from you into us. And let fruit be born in our lives in such abundance. Our Father is glorified in such abundance. It's obvious we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives, we ask. Amen. The altars are open if you want to come.